HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's episode of Let's Get Real is brought to you by our friends at Fairway Market. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live to the cosmos from the backyard at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Welcome to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. Well, it's uh, getting to be that time of year again. You know, the time for marshmallow peeps and jelly beans and plastic Easter grass and matzah. Since both holidays fall on the same weekend this year. And I don't know how often that happens. I think that doesn't happen that often that the holidays coincide, but... What I do know is that the traffic leaving New York on Friday is going to seriously suck bad. So I'm leaving on Thursday. Now, I don't really, you know, I don't do Easter. Occasionally, I don't really do Easter. Being, you know, a Hebrew and all that. But um, I do like to color eggs. I think that's really fun, coloring eggs. And, um, of course, I like to buy half-price Easter candy on Monday, the day after. Although I'm not eating sugar anymore, I've decided that. But um, no, my thing is that, that, you know, this time of year, I like to make my own matzah. And uh, if you listen to my old show, Why We Cook, I think I talked about that last spring. Um, I've been making my own matzah for probably 15, 17 years now. Long time. Ever since I got a copy of the book Baking with Julia, which was Julia Child baking book back in the 90s. And Julia had a recipe in there, which I followed and that's actually really hilarious when you think about the fact that the matzo recipe came from a julia child book because there never lived a waspier wasp than the great julia child i mean like she was like mayflower waspy but she put a matzo recipe in her last baking book and um she said that even though she didn't you know celebrate passover she proclaimed that they were great with cocktails once a wasp, 
always a wasp to the manor born. Now, my people, we don't, we didn't really do cocktails. When the cocktails really hit the big time, we were all still too busy, like, hiding out from the Cossacks and then, like, the SS and the Nazis and, you know, before that, escaping Egypt. So we didn't really do cocktails that much. And then after all that, we were too busy controlling the banks in Hollywood. Maybe there was cocktail drinking then. But anyway, we're heading into Passover. It starts this Friday. And um, you may or may not know this, but if you are observant during Passover, which I'm not, but if you are, you're not supposed to eat anything leavened for the whole week of the holiday in remembrance of our hasty retreat out of Egypt and all that stuff, you know, all that mythology. Um, So, you know, we were leaving Egypt in a big hurry. Had to get out. We're in trouble. Big problems. And um, so we didn't have time to wait for the bread that we had made to rise, apparently. We, my people, this is the story anyway. You know, we didn't have time to wait for the leavening to happen. So we had to bake flatbread and take it with us and because we, we had to get out fast. So we made matzah instead. Now, in the Maxwell House Haggadah, the great Jewish historical document, which I grew up reading at every Seder and still like to use. There's something in it about how we carried the unleavened bread out on our backs through the desert out of Egypt. Now, when I was a kid, I was confusedly misinterpreted that. And I thought that it meant that we actually put the raw dough on our naked backs and let it bake on our skin. As we walked across the desert. That I. Do you see what I'm saying here? Like we carried it out on our backs. I thought well okay. It's really hot. And you're out in the sun. So you roll out the dough. You slap it on each other's backs. And then you walk across the desert. And then you, a couple hours later. Your bread is baked. It falls off. It's also good for protecting you from the sun. <sighs> what did I know? I also always thought that the term. About the plagues. You know there are the plagues right? Ten. Ten plagues? I don't know, that they rain down from above. Now, some of them did, you know, like hail. But I thought it meant that all the plagues like rain down from the sky. And one of the plagues is about cattle disease. So I always had this picture of dead cows falling from the sky. And there's also the plague about, you know, I will smite your firstborn son. And so I also imagined a sky full of dead baby boys. Plummeting down on my ancestors from the sunny Middle Eastern sky. And maybe the dead baby boy stuck to the dough on their backs. So anyway, this time of year, you're supposed to purge your life of anything leavened. Yep. You're supposed to clean it out of your house and your car also and burn it. The leavened stuff, not the house or the car. So you're supposed to like find all the crumbs and all the leftover bread and everything. And you take it outside and you're supposed to burn it. And then you're only supposed to eat matzah for a week, eight days, a week. Now, matzah doesn't have a lot of fiber in it. So this, I really think, is the true reason why Moses had to implore to Pharaoh, let my people go. Because after eight days of eating matzah, they couldn't. (laughs) Okay, that's like my favorite Passover joke. Ever. And I, you know, we tell it every year. Sorry. 
Um, did you also know that the Jewish religion is the only religion to lay claim to the dubious accomplishment of having killed another religion's God? Now, that's my little special Easter joke for you. So anyway, this leaven stuff, it's called chametz, not to be confused with hummus. <coughs> Has to go. The leaven stuff, the chametz, you got to get rid of it from your house. Now, I don't do this. I'm not an observer, okay? Did you notice that? I'm a non-believer. I'm a post-post-modern Jew, more in like the vein of John Stewart or Sarah Silverman. They're more of my tribe. But what I am is a once-a-year participant in a ritual that I like to follow, mainly because of the food and the copious wine consumption. I don't observe, but I do make my own matzah because it's fun and it's seriously artisanal. I should be selling this matzah at the Brooklyn Flea for Moses' sakes. I could probably get $5 a piece for it at the flea. But what I really like about it, about the matzah, is just the pure simplicity of it, the absolute pure simplicity of the dough. It has two ingredients. It has flour and water. You can also add salt to it, but you don't have to add salt if you get really hot and sweaty when you're kneading it in the hot Egyptian desert sun. Remember, this was happening way back when in the spring in the Middle East. It was hot. So if you sweat enough, the sweat falls in the dough. You don't need salt. I add salt. So flour, water, sweat, or salt. And then I always add in a couple things like sesame seeds or black pepper just for some flavor. You know, but that's okay because I'm not religious, so I don't get in trouble for that. And as we all know, when you remove the religious part of being Jewish, we're actually very funny people, which is, I'm sure, one of the reasons why you're listening to the show in the first place, for the laughs. And, you know, it's not like there are a lot of really famous, funny, orthodox Jewish comedians. Just saying. Anyway, so back to bread, right? So that's all that bread is. Oh, back to matzah. I haven't even gotten a bread yet. It's flour and water. You know, that'll give you a flat bread. You want a risen bread? You want it to have a little heft to it, a little rise? Well, you let that dough sit around for a while, and the yeast from the air will find it and start eating it and fill it with CO2 bubbles. That's how it happens. Yeast live all over the place. They're in the air. They go, oh, look, there's flour and water mixed together. That's food, and they land on it, and they start eating it, and they digest, and they excrete, and they basically fart, and that's what happens, the CO2. And then there, boom, it's leavened. If your dough sits out, long enough, it'll leaven itself. And if you then keep a little piece of that leavened dough and you add it to your next day's dough, you can leaven that dough too. And on and on and on throughout the centuries. And that's how people have made bread since the earliest times. Like seriously, like 10,000 years ago until about 100 years ago. And it's funny because so many of the things I talk about here on Let's Get Real are about things that have happened in the last hundred years. It's like we went on and on and on and on and on and on. And then we hit that mark. hundred years and everything changed. The Industrial Revolution is what happened a hundred years ago. And the Industrial Revolution changed the way we eat so dramatically that it was like 10,000 years of human food culture just got flushed down the collective industrial toilet and came out as foodiness on the other side. The point is that until industrialization, all bread used to be made like I make my matzah every year by hand, slowly. Well, matzah actually you make quickly. You have to make it in under 18 minutes. Did you know that? If you make it in 
more than 18 minutes, technically it starts to leaven on its own and then you can't use it. But I do. But other bread has to be slow, slow, because you were using wild yeast, either in the form of like a sourdough starter or by saving some of that previous day's dough as a starter. And those yeasts are slow. They take their time. They're natural, slow pokey yeast. And they like, they like cool, damp temperatures and just nice, slow rises. But in return, the payback is great because you get very flavorful, very crusty, hearty, delicious, artisanal bread, real bread. And so until scientists in the Industrial Revolution figured out how to isolate and grow yeast commercially and make faster and faster and faster acting yeasts to speed up the process and free the baker and the housewife from the ball and chain of waiting for their dough to rise, we had good bread. But then along came that industrially trapped produced yeast, which worked faster and faster and faster. And we started to get softer bread and fluffier bread and less flavorful bread because the bread was being made quicker and quicker and faster and faster. And eventually, it led us to that miracle of modern science, which is called wonder bread, which has to be the best case of Orwellian branding ever, given that wonder bread is the least wondrous or wonderful bread imaginable. The industrialization of wheat flour production also, along with the loss of thousands of diverse species of wheat in the quest for our one super wheat, also brought a lot of terrible change and loss to our bread lives. Also, most of the bread that we used to eat way back when, when we were all in the Middle East, because that's where we all come from, I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but we do all originally come from the Middle East. And it was all made from a wheat that grew there wildly called einkorn. And all our bread was made from this einkorn wheat. And einkorn was very good and very good for us. And that ancient wheat that einkorn dominated, well, it was originally domesticated and dominated the Tigris-Euphrates ancient Mesopotamian region. If you remember from school where all that is, the Fertile Crescent. Which, coincidentally, today is Iraq. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. Oh, thank you, Fertile Crescent, for having the plant that started up our culture. Oh, now we're going to bomb the shit out of you. Anyway, that wheat, that einkorn, crossbred with a variety of wheat from the Mediterranean, sort of like semolina. And it formed the ancestor of the wheat that we then brought to the new world with us, made its way into Europe and then came with us over here. And that form of wheat was high in protein and lower in gluten and more resistant and more flavorful and better. And it actually thrived right here in the Hudson Valley. I mean, Brooklyn technically isn't the Hudson Valley, but you know what I mean, right here in my region. In fact, we may have won our independence from Britain because of it. Because that wheat supplied the Continental Army with fresh bread. And the British troops only ate hardtack, which was a lot like matzah, actually. The British probably lost because they were constipated. Anyway, the heyday of that Hudson Valley wheat ended in the 19th century because a pest came in called the Hessian fly. And supposedly the Hessian fly had been brought by Britain's Hessian mercenaries. 
and also because of the railroad and the efficient transport routes that were opening up from the Midwest. And people said, oh, why should we cram into the East Coast and the Hudson Valley where the weather's unpredictable? We can go out to Iowa and plant thousands and thousands of acres of uniform wheat that doesn't have the Hessian fly. And we could put it on refrigerated railroad trucks and start bringing it everywhere we want. And that was the end of the good wheat. So bread, like all of our food, became industrialized. That's what I'm getting to. Wheat growing became centralized, standardized. Sugar processing and production got big and started making its way into everything. And all of our food got sweeter and whiter and softer and more uniform. And that's what people ate. And they loved it because after thousands of years of eating like rough, grainy, unrefined stuff... People said, oh, look at us. We're so refined. Our sugar's refined. Our flour is refined. And it was the era of the Victorians who associated whiteness with purity and quality and goodness. And so if you ate white food, you were godlike, saintly. And that's what people ate, unless you lived in my house, of course, where we ate homemade bread and rye bread, but also supermarket white bread, which is sort of funny. I was thinking about it. We were kind of like half in the hippie camp. And half in the, like, Betty Draper camp, you know? Like, kind of half suburban housewife and half, like, hippie earth mom. And that's how it stayed for most, I think, of the of the states. Most of us. Until, like, the 70s and 80s when word finally started getting out that maybe all that white flour was killing us and causing diabetes and cancer and heart disease. Although it took a long time for people to figure that one out. Because, you know, that's what white bread does and white flour. It acts like pure sugar when you eat it and gives you heart disease and diabetes. And now some scientists think cancer. Yep. They think that the C word is caused by sugar. And white flour is just sugar. And so after decades and decades of white bread... Wonder, squishy, uniform slices. The word got out that whole grains and whole wheat and artisan and hearth-baked breads were actually better for us. Really? The crusty, brown, ununiform stuff of the old days is better. And good bakers started to make real bread again and rediscover older varieties of wheat and techniques. And now there's like a bread revolution going on, which is amazing. I have people come to me and say, the bread they can get here in the States now is better than the bread they can get in Europe just shocking. But we're also talking about an era or a couple of, like a century really, where the very term white bread became like the moniker with which we describe anything that's vacuous or meaningless or empty or without value. White bread became an icon of everything that should be nourishing us, but is in fact empty. Like foodiness, like the housewives, like Sarah Palin. And we all cheered and we said, yay, good bread, finally. Someone's making good bread. Everyone's catching on. But we probably cheered too loud. Because guess who heard us? Yes. The fiend of the processed food world. The opportunist of the edible. The great deceiver himself. Foodiness. They weren't going to let real bakers have all the fun. They took the characteristics of good non-industrial bread and put them through the foodiness matrix mill and created bread that looked like good quality hoey artisan bread, but was really just the same old shit inside. Just the same old Wonder Bread, just brown, only worse this time. 
Maybe it was brown because it actually had shit inside of it. I don't want to think about that. So bread has been the symbol of life for as long as we've been keeping track of our symbols. I mean, think of the Catholic and Christian stuff like body of Christ and all that. That's some pretty weird shit. Those are kind of like tiny little matzahs, aren't they? I never thought of that. Think of all the stuff in English. Staff of life. Breadwinner. It's my bread and butter. We sit down to break bread with each other. The word companion means with bread. Think about it. So how is it that that ultimate symbol of life and Western civilization has been hijacked by foodiness? It's been candified and squishified and whitened and brightened. It's like a Kardashian. And yet again, it's infantilized us by taking a real substantial food and turning it into a toddler treat. Something for people with no teeth. Soft enough that a baby can chew it. And regardless of how you feel about carbs, ingesting carbs, or eating wheat in general, or gluten issues, which are huge, or maybe you're a paleo eater, or any of that, we all have to agree that Western civilization was born and raised on wheat. Yes? Do we all agree? Eastern civilization, rice. Western, wheat. Ingredients in rice, rice and water. Maybe salt. Ingredients in bread, wheat, and water. Maybe salt. The whole yeast thing happened by accident. And I'll go so far as to say that bread was probably the first processed food. I give you that. Yes, it's processed food. I mean, you can eat wheat right off the stalk, green, and it's good. It's, it's like eating, you know, wheat right off the stalk. But it's better when you grind it up and make bread out of it. You actually can get more nutrition out of it when you grind it up and make bread out of it too. Because if you just try to chew it up as is, you can't really break down the bran very well. So how is bread the first processed food? Well, somebody back in Mesopotamia or even before that, before they even were cultivating wheat, when it was just some wild plant growing and no one knew what it was way back, someone said, Hey, let's take these random various plants we found, starchy roots and tubers and grains and things, and let's grind them up and see what happens because it might be easier for us to eat them if we grind them first. And humans have been grinding up starchy plants and tubers long before they discovered wheat as a food and making like simple baked cakes from those plants. Not like, you know, cake like we eat, but like ground up weird root vegetable mixed with water baked on a hot stone kind of cake. Hmm. Kind of like matzah. So anyway, let's grind up this new plant that we've just come across that is called wheat and mix the powder with water and leave it on a hot stone in the fire and see how it tastes. Probably tasted a lot like matzah too, actually. But, you know, they put some butter on it and then it was okay. So yeah, bread is a processed food, albeit a very simple one. Now, how did we get from that, though, to this, to where we are now? We'll get back to that after a very short break. Moses, way down in Egypt land. Let my people go. 
people go so hard they could not stand today's program was brought to you by fairway market whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd fairway market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal but if you don't feel like cooking no worries they cater check out fairwaymarket.com for more information and be sure to check the new blog on our plate for weekly specials health tips and recipes Welcome back to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Weitz, your host. That was an actual recording of my Hebrew school class singing Go Down Moses in 1978 in Suffolk County, Long Island. Yes, we had a little black kid who looked just like Louis Armstrong in the class. That was us. Okay, anyway, so how did we get from 10,000 years of real bread to where we are today. That's a very good question. I mean, we talked about that, the Industrial Revolution, blah, blah, blah. I want to give you the list, the ingredient list now for Wonder Whole Wheat. Now, I don't think Wonder's still in the market. I remember a couple months ago hearing that they they weren't going to be selling Wonder anymore. Am I right? Or was that the Twinkie? I get them mixed up because they're basically the same product. But anyway, Wonder said, okay, we better start selling whole wheat, right? Now, there, there was always wheat. There was always like wheat bread, but all bread is made out of wheat, so it didn't mean anything. But this is Wonder Whole Wheat bread. Now, remember, just because something's called whole wheat doesn't mean it has to contain 100% whole wheat. It has to say 100% whole wheat on it. In the case of Wonder, it does contain 100%. But they add all kinds of other shit to it to make it more palatable to the toothless, doughy-bodied masses who can't bear anything but Wonder-type bread. So here's what's in it, okay? Whole wheat flour is the first ingredient. Well, that's a good sign. Water, oh yeah, you need that. Wheat gluten, yeah, they add that to it to give it some structure. High fructose corn syrup, we know what that is. Soybean oil, salt, molasses. So far, we're okay. Yeast, yeah. Mono and diglycerides. Exthoxylated mono and diglycerides. Dough conditioners, which are sodium, steroid, lactylate, calcium iodate, calcium dioxide. Datum datum we'll get back to that in a minute calcium sulfate vinegar ammonium sulfate extracts of malted barley and corn dicalcium phosphate diammonium phosphate calcium propionate to retain freshness so what do we have in there we have four kinds of sugar right four sweeteners soybean oil from i'm sure gmo nasty soybeans multiple dough conditioners which are what they put in to make it soft and squishy including something called datum Datum, which is an acronym which stands for diacetyl tartaric acid esters of monoglycerides. And that's also a preservative. Datum. When my ancestors were booking it out of Egypt with the dough spread on their backs, did somebody suddenly look back and say, shit, I forgot the datum. I don't think so. And here's another one that just kills me. So the new thing in bread, in packaged bread, is something called a sandwich thin Have you seen these? So back in December, I went to Utah to this hiking spa, which was great. And I had a great time. And I've talked about it before. Um, I had some issues with the food, though. They gave us lunch on these things a couple of times. And um, I had to tell them to stop because I read the ingredients on the bag. And they all are sweetened. And they all had artificial sweeteners in them. Splenda. There was Splenda in my bread. 
Splenda, and I am not eating that in anything, especially bread. And so I started looking around online to look at the ingredients on some of these sandwich thins. They're basically like rolls without any guts. It's like just flat crust, which is a good idea. But so I noticed that Arnold, Arnold sandwich thins now have stevia in them instead. I I suppose it's to replace the Splenda. And anyway, either way, I won't eat stevia either. I, I know it's a plant, but I don't trust it. And it tastes horrible. And I don't want sugar in my bread at all. I mean, if I'm making like some sort of bread recipe that calls for some sort of sugar, I'll put it in, but I'll use sugar. Like if I'm making a brioche and it should be a little sweet, I'll put in the damn sugar. We know how bad artificial sweeteners are for us. I hope we know that. I hope we all know that they're nasty, horrible, untested chemicals that are going to eventually kill us all. And even stevia should not be trusted. And what's really fucked up about them is that they're using them to make bread sweet because People don't want to eat sugar, right? So they're leaving the sugar out of the bread and instead putting in Splenda, which is taking us further down the foodiness rabbit hole than I can even conceive of. I mean, it's not good to eat a lot of sugar either, but a little bit of sugar in a bread recipe sometimes really helps the yeast and it helps to soften up the gluten and it can be a good thing. But if they replace the sugar with artificial sweeteners, then the world really has gone to hell and we deserve someone like Sarah Palin as a president. I'll be doing a show on artificial sweeteners coming up very shortly. So anyway, here's what's in the sandwich thins. Whole wheat flour, water, yeast, sugar, wheat gluten, same stuff. Cellulose fiber, polydextrose, salt, soybean, and or canola oil. Preservatives, calcium propionate, sorbic acid. Guarga, monoglyceride, citric acid, stevia, soy lecithin. So this one, along with the stevia, also has two other kinds of sugar, plus cellulose fiber, Cellulose fiber comes from the wood pulp industry. It's like a byproduct of paper making, and it's used to pump up the fiber content in bread and as like a bulking agent to give bread body without calories because we do not digest cellulose. Cows digest cellulose, but we can't. So they can kind of fill the bread out with it, and it doesn't add any calories because it goes right through us. Same with guar gum, which is a thickener that we, has, we can't digest, so no calories goes right through you. Shit, we forgot to bring the guar gum across the desert, too. Maybe we can just add sand. That'll work. So I guess the sandwich thin is designed for people who want to keep their calorie intake low. I mean, I guess, obviously. Maybe the answer to that would be to just eat half the amount of real bread instead of twice the amount of foodiness bread. Now, I haven't walked down a bread aisle in a supermarket for a very long time because it's not where I buy my bread. I have Belinda, my crack research assistant for that. She goes to the store and finds all the foodiness products for me that I talk about and then reports back to me. I know, it's great. She's the best. I buy my bread at farmer's markets from good bakers like Bread Alone or other local companies. And a lot of them are even now using local grains, locally raised grains, which is amazing. But I know that that's totally unrealistic for almost everybody. I'm not saying you have to do that. If you don't live near a farmer's market or a good bread bakery or even like a, you know, a Whole Foods or a Fairway or someplace like that, what are you going to do? Well, the first thing you need to do is learn how to read. Now, most of us can do that already. I think we're still able to read as a species. So that's good. Now, go to the store and read. Read the labels. Now, the bread aisle, with its long, wordy labels and ingredients and all those images of golden, waving, weedy fields is what the marketers and ad people think 
that you think grain looks like. And that is just taking you down into that foodiness matrix. You remember in the movie, The Matrix, all those numbers and letters of code that went up and down the screen to symbolize the programming that went into our experience of reality? Well, it's kind of like that. Kind of overwhelming, kind of totally convincing in the way it can just shut your brain down altogether. So if you go into the bread aisle, you need to shut all that out and just look for the label that says 100% whole grain or 100% whole wheat. Say it with me. 100% whole grain or 100% whole wheat. Remember that it has to say 100% in order to be really whole wheat or whole grain. Terms like multigrain, hearty grain, magic grain, grainy grain, hearty grain, earthy grain, crunchy grain doesn't mean anything. If it just says whole wheat, it doesn't have to be 100%. 100% means no white flour. Not 100% a big pile of white flour plus some other brown stuff thrown in there. Now, if you remember back to my show a while ago that I did called There's No Such Thing as Whole Grain Captain Crunch, you'll remember that I talked about an evil new foodiness ploy that uses an albino strain of wheat to make white flour products but call them whole wheat. This is also like in The Matrix when the program called Agent Smith learns how to turn other programs and then actual people into copies of himself. So foodiness manufacturing is trying to turn real whole wheat into a foodiness facsimile. Now, the reason, of course, is that people don't like brown food. They want it white. But they see on TV or they hear that they should be eating whole wheat. So that makes them feel virtuous that they're doing it. So if something says whole wheat, but it's white, don't eat it. That's like Mitt Romney creating universal health care for Massachusetts and then declaring that he's opposed to it. That's foodiness hypocrisy. So once Agent Smith has taken over real whole wheat and replaced it with an albino doppelganger that's making you fat and sick, you are down in the matrix. So that first step is to read those labels. And the second step is to take a, take a gander at the ingredient list. You don't have to know what cellulose fiber or polydextrose is. Rather, if you see them or any ingredients that look like them, run. Well, you don't actually have to run. That might be going a little overboard. But you can calmly put the foodiness bread you just picked up back down on the shelf, turn around, and walk out. There are no Egyptians, Egyptians chasing you or Nazis or Cossacks, just your food conscience. Again, you want to look at the ingredients list, but you don't want to be drawn in. Just looking at ingredients with names like that sound like the names that sound like, you know, hair products or like feminine hygiene wash. They're bad. You don't want to be eating those. Now, that said, you can also take a passing glance and learn what you need to learn. Like with all packaged and processed food, you want a short ingredient list. Like it should say ingredients, whole wheat flour, water, salt, yeast. Maybe a couple other things. Maybe molasses, maybe poppy seeds, onions. They should be food words, not chemistry words. Like words you learned in home ec, not words you learned in chemistry class. Nothing with the letter X in it and nothing that ends in os or eight or ik. Look for things that you'd eat if they were singular food items like flour or salt. Do you keep cellulose fiber or datum on your pantry shelf? Then why are they in your bread? And of course, I usually tell you at this point in my show that the best way out of the foodiness rabbit hole is to make your own food. Cook some soup or some eggs or something. But in the case of bread, sitting at home on Saturday nights baking bread is not really very realistic. I mean, people don't even bother to cook anymore because they're too busy 
pinning their interests on their Facebook page. So it's not realistic to have everyone start off by baking their own bread. Although if you did, you probably would have a lot of actual friends who'd want to actually come to your house and eat it. Just saying. Then you could pin your interest of bread baking on your Facebook page. And you could certainly make your own. It's actually not that hard. It's pretty simple. You don't even need to knead. You don't need to knead. You can use Jim Leahy's no knead bread method. Just Google it. It's amazing. Just type in no knead bread. Remember, there's a K there in knead. And if you think, no, there's no way I would ever have time to make my own bread, consider this. If you cut your boondoggle time in, say, half... If you Googled yourself or stared at your device or updated your status or Googled to find out who's Googling you half as much, you could totally spend that time learning how to make your own bread. Imagine yourself on your deathbed thinking, I should have Googled myself more. You can't imagine that. Of course you can't because no sane person would think that. So imagine instead thinking, I didn't know everyone ever who searched for me on the internet, but I did learn how to bake bread. I mean, as your final parting thought from this world, you could do worse. Somebody actually once said to me, nobody ever lay on their deathbed wishing they had watched more Matlock. But getting good bread now in stores isn't that hard anymore either. I mean, luckily the tide has really turned back toward an appreciation of good bread without chemicals and fungicides and corn syrup and hair gel in it. Bread made like it was made for thousands of years before foodiness got its sticky little paws all over it. And if you walk down the bread aisle, you can find that 100% whole wheat bread with fewer than five ingredients if you're really looking for it. And don't be scared of the carbs. Eating good handmade bread is an amazing, delicious ancient food custom. And if you eat a little bit of the good bread, you won't need to eat a lot of the bad bread. How about eating that one piece of real bread and still two pieces of foodiness bread? And that's how I do it. And the fear of gluten that's sweeping the nation and the food industry now is crazy. And people are just embracing the gluten fear as like the next new diet fad. But there is some legitimacy to it, to be sure. I mean, there are a lot of people who genuinely do have celiac disease for real and who get very sick. And a lot of people who are just gluten sensitive. And I understand that. Although, just like I don't think a lot of kids in sub-Saharan Africa suffer from ADD, I don't think most allergy to wheat is very common amongst the world's poor, let's say. They're probably not pushing the bread away because their nutritionist tells them to stay away from it, given that they're starving and all. Part of it is that in the rest of the world, they still grow their own varieties and local wheat. Although, not for much longer if Monsanto gets its way. But still, for the sake of argument, there's some thought that this is all coming down on us due to our monoculture of our wheat. That we eat wheat, almost 100% of what the wheat we eat has been genetically engineered over the years for maximum volume, disease resistance, and a very high gluten content. You need that high gluten content so you can make your bread really fast. Older strains of wheat, thousands and thousands of them used to be eaten all over the world. And we all had natural resistance to the gluten in the wheat in our particular region. We've bred it out of ourselves by breeding our wheat to death. That's why if you can get bread from a local baker who's using local wheat, you're in great shape. Otherwise, at least use a baker who's buying organic grain because they're probably using a better quality, older variety of wheat. And chances are 
people will be less sensitive to it. So this Friday, when you peel that matzah off your back and you sit down to your brisket and cabernet and picture the firstborn boys and the frogs falling from the sky, think about the importance of bread in our lives. Or when you're done gorging on your peeps and your Cadbury cream eggs and you need some real food, make yourself some good toast and put some real butter on it and enjoy the staff of life with your Easter ham. And if you don't want to eat shit, stay out of the bread aisle. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.